Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a pod- or welcome back, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from CityCo, even Vaughan Allen if I pronounce it properly, and this is the start of our third season. This autumn we'll be talking to a lot of cultural people, doing some history, ranting about restaurants and generally chatting about Manchester as we always do. I'm at the Palace Theatre, at the very top of the Palace Theatre. What are we, fourth floor, fifth floor? I think we're probably about the seventh floor. About the seventh floor. Um, because of various reasons, the lifts aren't working too well. There's no water in this. I shouldn't say these things. No, you can say all bad. of these things. <laughs> it will be all of these by things the are being fixed the by the many contractors who are working very hard. So anyway, I've been, I've been walking all the way up to the top. Uh, and I'm in the office of uh, Sheena Wrigley, the theatre director, chief executive. I'm just called the theatre director, director here. Um, both here and of the Opera House That's in Manchester. Right. Uh, Sheen has been in post, I think, around a year now. It's, it's, I'm it's going to say nine months. Nine yes. months, okay. Uh, in what is certainly the most commercially successful theatre in Manchester, uh, but yet one that's often ignored when people list the cultural gems of the city. I feel. Um, Sheena, let's start with you. Uh, Give us a bit of your background and and also what attracted you to the palace. Well, my background really, my story really starts in Manchester and that's partly one of the reasons why I'm here. Um, I was brought up here. I've got a long family history in Manchester, but spent most of my professional life working away from Manchester, initially in London, uh, other parts of the UK, a little bit of time over in North America. And then I moved back to the north of England, but to Yorkshire and um, did most of my sort of leadership in theatres and cultural organisations over in Yorkshire. So I was in Leeds, Bradford, Harrogate. And um, I came over initially, returning to Manchester three years ago to work at home and to be part of the team opening the new venue, which was really exciting, and um, therefore brought my family with me and we relocated back to Manchester. And uh, this is my, my second role. Uh, in my return journey to Manchester. So going with home from the newest theatre, I suppose, yes. to the oldest theatre. I know, it's quite, quite yes, different. Yes, the Royal Exchange is an older building, but it's not an older theatre, is no, it? No, no, it's true. And I um, I mean, you asked what attracted me to the palace. Well, a mixture of things, really. Um, on the one hand, I've come back to a city that I lived in right the way through my childhood up to some of my university days um, and then didn't return often to because my parents, for all sorts of other reasons, moved out of the city. So this stopped being my home base. I was really struck when I came back at how invisible I felt as a cultural leader the two big commercial venues in the city centre were. And I was fascinated by the fact that they had played, certainly for me and for many of my generation, such an enormously influential part of my childhood and my youth. Um, They were the venues in which I saw, you know, my first ballets, my first big shows. They were special places that your parents took you to for a birthday or for a Christmas. And I'm fascinated by the challenge, I suppose, of recapturing that, but trying to ensure it's relevant to a generation of families, a generation of students and a generation of young working people in the city. So when I was approached to come and work here, I thought, this is really outside my usual range of experience. I've, I've worked most of my life in the what's called the subsidised theatre sector and it felt like a, a really good time to try and do something to um, raise the profile, really, of both venues. OK, well, we'll, I mean, we'll get back to sort of the funding situation, I guess, and revenue streams, which are, which are very different from in most of the venues that I talk to people who work in. Um, I mean, it's really interesting what you're saying about the importance 
I guess in childhood because mm. it's it's a conversation that comes up quite a lot. Something like the Manchester Museum, you know, every every child in the city in school is brought to see t- the T Rex there. Yes, um, and then parents will bring their children to see it, and mm. and it becomes that. Uh, even though it doesn't have a history of Manchester in it, it becomes that venue that ties the city together and is a sort of spirit. just into people's family histories. And what was fascinating when I came here was to, I mean, obviously I, I, I have many colleagues and friends in the city who uh, work within the cultural industries. And the two react, two couple of reactions that were really interesting. I mean, one was people... Uh, admitting that they secretly really liked musicals, which was fascinating because there's an awful lot of people who pretend they don't. Um, but also well, that... Or only like the quality ones. Only, of course. Well, me too, of course. Um, but also that they had either very fond, like I did, childhood memories or, you know, memories of students coming here, or they'd actually worked in one of these venues. It was fascinating to me how many people who are you know, quite influential, certainly within the cultural industries within the city, started doing part-time jobs in either the Palace or the Opera House, perhaps um, front of house or maybe on stage door or in the box office or in one of the cafes. So there was there's a real sense in which they've been knitted into the city. And I think one of the things we're trying to do at the moment is just... Um, shout about that a bit more and make that more visible and more evident to people in Manchester today. And place ourselves back in everyone's hearts, really, which is, sounds a bit of a, a cliche, but it's, it's where, where we're driving to. Just a matter of interest, I mean, how many employees do you have? Well, it's actually not that... It's, it's small and it's big. The core team in these two venues is really very small. Um, but when you look at all of the people who we need to work with in order to get a show on, to open the house, to service these very uh, idiosyncratic front-of-house areas... It's very staff heavy, so we have a payroll which can vacillate to up to about two, go up to about two hundred and fifty people. We need about sixty people a night to run the front of house areas in both of the two venues. So we use a lot of students, a lot of local people who work with us part time or short term, just to, I suppose, as secondary income or as student income. But you can see why then people have that path of yeah. if they're interested in the theatre yeah. at all, they'll, they're going to end up here. Quite likely, because it's later. a great volume of people, obviously, yeah. we're um, working with. Can you talk us just a little bit through the history of the palace? I mean, particularly, I mean, you talked you talked about where maybe a change mm. between your childhood in, t- in terms of its role in the city to, to when you came back. Yes. In, in, talk us a bit through how that had happened, but also, um, I guess, the, the numbers that are, that are coming through, because it's never gone through a, the palace is about to close because nobody's going stage, has it? I'm not sure about that because I've obviously for me there is a huge gap in the history both of the palace but also of Manchester. I must be one of the only people who lives in Manchester and left during the 1980s, 1990s, <laughs> missed the entire, I mean, Everybody else and just the Manchester music scene, the whole kind of cultural reinvention of Manchester. You know, I left a town that you know, was in deep, deep depression in the very sort of beginnings of the Thatcher period. In fact, we left because my dad got made redundant um, and returned to a city that had completely reinvented itself. So I have to admit, big gaps in knowledge, and that extends to the two theatres. I mean, my understanding is that they were much more independently run originally. They were the only big touring houses in the area. So they had, I suppose, golden tickets, really, in terms of every national company that toured ballet, opera, 
big music halls would naturally have to come into one of these venues if they wanted to play in Manchester. And that was also true to some level of concerts. Whereas obviously since that time, the new venues that have appeared on the scene, be that the Bridgewater Hall, be that the new venues at the RNCM, the Lowry, the Arena, all of these venues are new and they've obviously had a great impact for the benefit of the city, but they do make it a much more competitive environment. And so the two venues have really focused <coughs> on commercial theatre, particularly musical theatre, and I suppose what one would kindly call special events, but quite a lot of uh, one-night tribute style shows, which are things that we're trying to work on at the moment, which is how do we kind of keep the quality threshold that we so want to keep when we've got a lot of stage space to programme uh, and a lot of competition in the city. I mean, in terms of, I mean, you mentioned stage space, but to, to slightly take a pun on that, um, having, having walked around the back of the stage and seen quite how huge it is, um, though there are a lot of other venues not in Manchester, mm. none of them compare. No, the palace in, in is the, enormous. The space that you've got. Yeah, absolutely enormous. And I mean, we, we, I, think, I think I'm right in saying that we are thankful to that because there was a plan that was unfortunately abandoned some way into its gestation, which was about the palace as being a sort of a home in the north for the Royal Opera House and the Royal Opera. And so the stage and all of the technical facilities at the palace were extended and upgraded. Uh, the company, the management at that time, acquired buildings behind the palace, which allowed it to have this extremely large stage. Uh, what it does mean is that we can take the massive musicals, you know, the scale of the full production of Saigon, the full production of Les Miserables, the full production in the past of things like The Lion King. We don't have to economise or bring a smaller version. The Opera House isn't quite so big stage-wise, but it's still a full-size stage that is capable of taking ballet and opera. And, of course, both venues have big orchestra pits. Yeah, we've noticeably been talking about the palace. We have. Less about the opera house. So um, talk to me about the similarities and differences. Yes. Have they always been joined, or presumably? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, actually. I think they have probably in the last 15 to 20 years. They have been so, managed uh, by the same Talk me through the differences, particularly in programming. Um, well, it's interesting because one of the challenges um and this is something that's been very much part of the dialogue since i've arrived is that essentially both venues can do the same job slight difference in scale but they're essentially both just under 2000 seat lyric theatres so big you know the three tiers wide stages and suitable for large-scale touring productions so one of the things we're working on is how should we and can we differentiate between the two programmes. And given the slightly larger size of the palace and the fact that it therefore does become the stopping off place for the very large musicals, do we therefore build uh, a brand and a profile around the palace that is very much about those number one premier line musicals? And so that's what we're pursuing at the moment, is that the really big ones come in here and that we try and keep the programme here in that premier league of musicals. Now, that creates both a great opportunity for us at the Opera House, but it also creates some challenges because we're pushing more of the work into the palace, which opens up a bit of a gap in terms of the Opera House, because quite frankly, there just isn't as much large-scale quality touring musical as perhaps 
well, perhaps the city could take. I mean, we've got with the Lowry's as well in play, there are three venues here, all of which are playing in the same sort of territory. And that's before we start to add in the sort of um, diversity, diversification of the Bridgewater uh, Bridgewater's programme or even what might or might not happen with the factory opening. So there is a, a real challenge for us with the Opera House. Um, at the moment, because we've got an extremely rich programme for the next couple of years at the Palace, a number of big, high-profile musicals are going to go into the Opera House, which is fabulous news for, for me and for the city. Um, the other thing we're trying to do with the Opera House is we're... So a bit more flexibility. We are working with a number of uh, producers at the moment to open shows in the Opera House. So to uh, create, to create, because we can give the space over. We can say to a producer, you can have, you know, have those four weeks work on, you know, work on the stage, tech the show here, premiere it here. We've got to hope they're going to be absolutely corking brand new musicals in the next twelve months, which will open will rehearse, open and tech in the Opera House. We'll have their world premieres in Manchester. And then, like we have done in the past with things like Bat Out of Hell, we'll hopefully go on and have a really extended, successful life nationally in the West End, touring internationally. So that's the idea. One of the ideas is that we start to use the Opera House more as a launch pad. Uh, but that needs a, you know, that needs a concerted effort from both our own parent company, ATG, and a, an open mind from producers to do that work in Manchester. So sort of taking the, the two theatres in different directions in um, the Palace being the first stop after the West End or even straight from mm -hmm. New York for the mm -hmm. big shows. Yeah. But then uh, the Opera House almost being a... Um, Creating rep, I guess, um, yeah, to, I mean, to test things out before they then move yes, on to exactly. somewhere else. And and even things like you know we've got a brand new uh, we we launched the new well actually that happened here we launched the the first the, the new national tour of fame here so we're just giving people a little bit more space to get things up on its legs and get it running. And the other thing we're looking at with the opera house is um, putting a little bit more quality drama into the opera house so again that's hard because it, we're very dependent on other producers to make that we don't produce our own work that's not strictly true because atg ambassadors theater group which we're part of do have a production company so there's a couple of productions we'll be bringing in next year which we will produce as a company but they will come into manchester in the opera house um we're Really, I mean, in the autumn this year, we've got a production of uh, Rebus Story, a Rebus adaptation, which is coming out of Birmingham Rep, but with commercial producing money behind it. And that's going to play in the Opera House. So trying to just shift around a little bit so that they're not completely different programmes, because we've got things like Kinky Boots coming in this autumn, which is the first time it's come out of the West End. It's going into the Opera House because we've got... Matilda in the middle of the palace so we can't have both but just to be able to play both of those I know mix. it's a fantastic <laughs> mix I love it and then next year we are um, debuting Motown the musical when it comes out of the West End and again that's going in the opera house but it's going in the opera house because we've got Les Miserables in the palace so it's an absolute embarrassment of riches for the next year or so, so. Which, which is wonderful you talked it's about I uh, talked about uh, Ambassadors Theatre Group um, who've owned mm -hmm. the venue for a, a number of years I mean what, how does the relationship work with them um, how much freedom do you have and how much freedom do your team have in terms um, of programming it's a company going through some evolution at the moment so um, my post here and those of my colleagues in similar posts across the larger cities in the uk 
it's a new post. And the idea behind these posts is that there is more local autonomy and therefore more local influence in the business decisions and some of the programming decisions that are being made. So they venues start to have a more direct relationship with the cities that they're in and that they start to reflect the tastes and the audiences that are in the different cities. Um, but it is an evolution. My, you know, my colleagues and I have all come into post in the last nine months to a year. Uh, the company as leadership is that this is the new direction for the company's leadership has decided upon but obviously bedding that in through a very large international company is quite challenging um i would say i am privileged to have a really good relationship with the central atg team in part because i've a bit i was gonna say long in the tooth but i don't think i want to say that but because i've been working in the industry for a long time i have quite a lot of um track record of programming and quite a lot of track record myself of producing theater so i am working with people that i've had relationships with in other parts of my career and therefore i tend to have um a very uh animated and robust conversation with them about programming clearly i am never going to refuse a fantastic massive musical because that would make no sense um, but what we do have is they they know that we have a we have a programming strategy for these two venues which we share so they will come to me with opportunities like the rebus opportunity or like the opening and say we're getting these approaches would you want to have a look at this as a project uh, we've had a couple of approaches ourselves with independent producers where we've gone back to them and said we want to do this they almost inevitably say can we scale it up could we do it for the whole group in a couple of occasions we've we, it looks like we can in others it's very much going to be a Manchester thing where either because I think it's more appropriate to this this city or they're not sure and I'm more willing to take the risk so I'll go well let's test it in Manchester and we'll take the risk on it and then if it works and if it seems to find an audience we could look at ATG picking it up and maybe touring it into some other venues but it's quite early days so it's um it's definitely give and take and it's one of the things that's most unusual for me as um somebody who's worked in the in the more the subsidized and government funded sector is is that working within a big company structure is really very different probably no more different than anybody going from a sort of small run your own business to a large corporate and then suddenly right realizing that they are a single arm of a massive octopus <laughs> an interesting image um uh, i mean talking about the difference i guess from the subsidized theater to to here you um i mean Ticket sales are very important in the subsidised theatre as well, Absolutely as are other revenue streams. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you balance between what your bars do as well and, mm. and what the, the cafe and the restaurant do? And um, how, how, what sort of the percentage comes from different streams for you? Um, it's interesting this because I've, I've always, I always said before I came into the commercial sector that, you know, it's, it's a false division in a way because the subsidised sector or has some government investment and any of the theatres in latter years that I've run have always had to have a majority of their income coming from commercial efforts, whether that's their box office, whether that's some kind of catering and bar operation or some other way of um, bringing money from the product that you create by touring or exploiting the product into different formats. So, it, it, the, you know, the division is not quite as stark as people I think, outside the industry think. Having said that, the focus on commercial results here is like nothing I've experienced before. And it's, and although, I mean, 
the vast majority of the income is coming through the ticket office, um, without a doubt. And I can't, I'm just trying to think about the proportion because we don't, we don't, we don't, our accounts are done in such a different way. Um, but I mean, yes, huge, vast amounts. I mean, you're talking about a major show coming through here when you've got something that's in for sort of 10 or 12 weeks, looking to take between four and five million pounds at the box office. Um, that's a very large amount of money. Having said that, the proportion that the venues receive as opposed to the producing companies is is not that big. But, you know, that's the, that's the, if you look at the size of the business, the money that's coming through the business, it's an extraordinarily large amount of money. Um, we do earn a lot of money from our bars and that's the side where I think this sector is incredibly forensic in the way it builds its business. Um, that's been a real revelation to me, the obsession about KPIs in terms of ancillary sales. Uh, I mean, to be honest, if I'd known what my spend per head over the course of, average spend per head over the course of a year was in any of the other theatres, I'd have thought I knew something really good and tangible about my secondary sales. Here, you have to know what it is every single day. And every so, single week. Is that the first thing you look in, look at every morning? No, but I've looked. No, oh, I'm, I'm, well, interestingly, after our conversation today, I'm on a finance call later today where we're looking at the August P&Ls, which means basically I go through every single KPI, financial KPI, with my with the business director uh, in a conference call with the finance team, and we will look at so many indicators, financial indicators, and I've had to learn to think like that because it is much more um, specific, much more robust, much more um, much more tracked. And it's being tracked not just within venue, but it's being tracked centrally. So I'm seeing the figures from everybody else's venues. So I can see the comparators against how Manchester's doing on, say, premium wine sales, against how Edinburgh's doing on premium wine sales, which for anybody in the hospitality business is probably like, that's what we do all the time. But when your primary business background is theatre, it's really interesting to find yourself poring over figures that have that look, you know, that are so detailed. Having run restaurant a restaurant in the past, um, that obsession on a Monday morning with first looking yeah. at the sheets for the performance over the weekend but also then okay the the small changes that can be done to the way somebody is asked what they'd want and all of those sort of oh, things completely. that then work through for staff yeah. training yeah. Um, which do seem to people outside the sector to be quite strange and very mm. sales-like and very go but actually they can make a huge difference little it changes. makes a massive difference and um, obviously one of the things you observe working within the part of a, as part of a larger company is that those small incremental changes then you take that across even just 50 odd venues and you can see the way that that impacts across the company so you know enormous amount of lesson learning from my perspective on those sort of areas uh, but yes ticket sales ticket sales ticket sales are the big thing i guess people wonder when they're paying what 50 to 80 quid potentially for a ticket mm -hmm. um and they do sort of think well that's the same price as the west end which it isn't quite but it, yeah you probably can get west end tickets for that sort of level if oh, you go God, on the right no, wet tuesday or the, yes. in february or whatever um and i guess i guess what's not understood is actually if you've got a show in for three or four weeks quite how much mm. it's cost to bring that show the number no, of, I mean, looking at something like the lion king which i think was my family came to was about 60 70 quid a 
Uh, yeah, a ticket it would be for, more for, now. for a matinee. Yeah, yeah, it probably would be more now. But the the, the number of people that were on stage, the, the amount of staging, never mind the people behind the, behind yes. the stage and so on. I mean, that's it's a huge operation. It's a huge operation. And when you, I mean, Saigon was the first really big one that I saw. Miss Saigon, which was with us in the spring this year, and I mean, it took a hundred people four days working twenty four hours a day to put the show onto the stage before the cast arrived. And the machinery, the amount of trucks, the scale of these things, they are absolutely phenomenally big. And of course, they then require huge numbers of people to run them. I mean, Saigon had about 25 people backstage, not including the cast and not including the orchestra. So you've got a company floating around the building of about 120 people. Um, and those people are all obviously earning not necessarily very large amounts of money, actually. Um, and as I've said, you know, we still need, we need 50 to 60 staff to open the front end of the operation. So you're talking several thousands of pounds of cost just to mount, just to open the buildings when you've got a big house and you've got 1,500, 2,000 people in it. So the actual cost of this lot is quite phenomenal. And it's not because we're all being paid loads of yeah. money, I can tell actually, you. Actually, most of the money from the ticket sales yeah. then goes back to the production company. You're it does. looking at that. Mm. No, it does. I another mean, we, 1% of that. Yeah, we work on, we work, essentially the business model is a, is a kind of shared percentage of the box office. And you're looking at somewhere between 10 and 20% going to the host venue and the rest of it going back to the production company. I, I don't think people realise actually how much... Um, it, it, it takes an awful lot of work to be a very successful writer of a West End or Broadway mm. play or a book in a musical. Mm. But if you do it and yes. you get... Uh, they're called residuals in the, yes. the theatre yeah, business. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, are that, exactly, I mean, I know, exactly I know that kind of thing. Stephen Fry, about 21, 22, did the book for Me and My That's Girl. Right, yes. And that's effectively where he made yes. his money. It is his multi-millions from and doing that and still you, gets it. Uh, completely, because those musicals are being played right across the globe now. Um, and it's not just the really big musicals either. There's such a big market for even the sort of second tier musicals, you know, the Fames and the Greases and the Legally Blondes and all those kind of things. I mean, ev globally. So if you have written one of those, you can really <laughs> do very well. Um, what I know this is a, something um, that you're doing a bit of work on, but... What, where do you think the theatre fits in within sort of the general offer in Manchester and, and how does it compare to the, the other theatres, the other, the other places think, in Manchester? I mean, it's interesting. As you're right to allude to that. We are doing some work at the moment where we are working with um, some independent consultants to talk to people, um, influencers like yourself, across the city about the way the two theatres are perceived now and also just tracking it back a little bit about how they have previously been perceived and what people's notion of how they could play a role. Um, at the moment, they have, they have been very insular for quite a long time. And that's partly to do with the way that the structure of the company has been. And I said that they were invisible. I think to qualify that, they're, they're, they're not invisible to the public because lots and lots, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people buy tickets to come into these venues. And we have really good market penetration. I mean, much higher than anywhere I've ever worked before. So in Greater Manchester, you've got kind of a recognition factor of about 50% of the population, which is high for, not for ATG, but for the Palace or the Opera House. Um, where they're less well um, acknowledged, I think, and where they have less impact is firstly within the cultural sector. They are generally not included in cultural conversation, in conversation from the cultural industries, from the cultural sector in the city. Um, 
and they're not engaging at the moment with some of the bigger sort of city civic and political agendas so we don't really haven't really been very active around thing contributing to uh discussions around say nighttime economy or visitor and uh tourist economy both of which we are clearly with certain shows and at certain times of the year big drivers in but we're invisible in those conversations as well so part of my brief is to make us more connected both so that we can make contribution but also we can perhaps gain some benefit for our own businesses from being part of those wider consortia perhaps a wider dialogue wider agenda setting discussions that are happening with people like yourselves with the city council with the chamber with marketing manchester with the university sector with the other cultural providers in the city we we just not really been part of that setup for quite a long time um so yes at the moment i would say we're very quiet we have very little in the way of um evidence and analysis about the impact that the venues make anything we can actually quantify so we're looking at doing some work around economic impact at the moment as you alluded to we're trying to pull some information around perceptions stakeholders um and just have a look at how we go about repositioning ourselves and what kind of contributions we can actually make because i mean again going back to i guess the the employment thing you may, you may have mm. you know 100 or or fewer employees directly but uh the number of particularly italian restaurants that seem to be mm. in the immediate <laughs> yes. area that uh, if, <laughs> yeah, if you go second... dark for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. probably has a huge impact it, I'm sure on, it does. on that on i mean the... The, there's one of the things we need to do through the economic impact where really is look at some of not just the obviously the secondary spend that's the employment because we are employing a lot of people as well um but also we have quite a lot of local suppliers even though we're part of a big company um you know a lot of our uh, supply chain is local we don't really look at the way that impacts so we're trying to gather some evidence and some data and some insights around this because at the minute we don't know that because nobody's really looked at it or considered the businesses in those those perspectives and i mean we want to influence things we want to be part of what's going on on oxford street we want to engage with people who are relocating to the to the city we want to be part of uh developing talent within the city because we think we've got something to offer and these doors have been sort of metaphorically closed to a lot of those um discussions for a long time Finally, I guess what's mm. what's next for the theatre? What are the big projects coming up? Um well I'm well I'm I'm ex- personally you can talk about. I can talk about. There are some that I can't talk about yet. <laughs> But I, I went in I did uh, an interview with Sally at uh, MMSI mm-hmm. um Museum of Science and Industry for those who who don't know the acronym that changes continually. Um and so I I said what the big project's coming up and she went it's a real shame you're interviewing me today because tomorrow we're just announcing something really important <laughs> and it was um Tim Peake's uh, oh, space yes, capsule was yes. coming there was the, she couldn't announce till the next day I was like oh we should well, organize it technically all I can talk about is the things that are in the public domain so obviously we have um I think I'm quite excited by some of the work that's beginning to come out of London that hasn't been out of London before so I am excited to have kinky boots in the city because um as everybody keeps saying to me if it can make you know if it can play anywhere kinky boots should be able to play in manchester and it's one of these sort of much more contemporary musicals that's given us you know just a very fresh 
feel and there's a whole bunch of those stacking up behind kinky boots which i am absolutely hoping we can gonna get hamilton up here drag to not <laughs> not in the foreseeable future i suspect but you're in the you're in the right vein i mean you can see them coming out of the states they're coming thick and fast now you've got things like hamilton you've obviously got um things like evan hansen you've got waitress coming in we've got heathers playing in london you know very contemporary musicals some founded coming off the back of films, some not. So I'm really hoping that we can start to find an audience for those more contemporary musicals and find a new theatrical audience, which which obviously we are managing to do in other big cities. Um, we've got uh, Les Miserables in the spring, which is a juggernaut, which I've never, ever seen myself, so I'm very excited about that. And uh, Motown, I think, will be a great, great fun although that one provides some challenge because it's not so well known up here and that's one of the other things that's quite interesting is some of these musicals that aren't the the standard um really well-known brand musicals how they then transfer out of london into a city like manchester is going to be very interesting in the next year big christmas big panto um which will be really interesting because we seem to be ramming it full of people from coronation street at the moment so let's hope that goes down well and obviously wicked which will be just a complete hoot over christmas so that's the really big stuff um there's some dramas as i said the rebus production which is coming out of birmingham rep has some great creatives behind it including ian rankin's involvement in adapting it for the stage which will be great and um we've got cost, a new production cost, cost them a lot in red wine I should think. yeah well that's right we don't mind and um, Glengarry Glen Ross is coming up out from London for us in the autumn, in the spring as well, which will be another piece of drama in the Opera House. So looking forward to that. Excellent. And then there's some stuff coming next summer, which you can see these bits over I here, but none of the big stuff's on there. I'm so. not allowed to say. <laughs> I'm looking at some uh, sketches on the, some sort of diary charts. A lot of on the my... schedule goes in June, goes week two, week three, week four. So it there's does, something yes. behind that. And we're talking to Manchester, we're working with, hoping to be working with Manchester International Festival next year as well. And there is one there that doesn't have a name and you're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Sheena. And as I said, we have a host of interviews with other cultural leaders coming up. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on always on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or through email on podcasts at cityco.com. Cottonmouth Manchester is available on all good podcast services and a few terrible ones. Please leave us a review if you like what you hear. <laughs>